You're listening to a message that was recorded live at Roots Community Church in Costa Mesa, California. Roots exists to celebrate the glory of God through lives transformed by the gospel of Jesus Christ. For more information about our community, visit us at rootschurch.net. God, thank you so much for your word. God, we in and of ourselves have nothing good to say apart from your word, what you have already spoken. God, thank you for your word. Thank you that you have spoken. Lord, I pray that today as we stand under your word, God, that you would let light shine out of darkness. God, would you by your word, cause for light to invade these dark places in our minds, in our hearts, in our bodies. God, would you, would you bring light? Would you bring clarity? God, would you help us to think through and think about how we are to make sense of the pain and suffering that we commonly face? Lord, in this text in Genesis 40, God, we see confusion, we see pain and suffering continue in the life of Joseph. God, would you direct our gaze to you? Would you be our hope? Would you be our treasure? Lord, we worship you, and we pray all of this in Christ's holy name. It's in his name we pray, amen. If you are able to remain standing for the reading of God's word, if you will turn with me to Genesis chapter 40. We were in the book of James last week, uh, and yet this week we jump back into Genesis, into this account, and we find ourselves here in Genesis 40. Whether you're able or unable to stand, would we all stand to attention in our hearts and in our minds as we read God's holy word? Genesis chapter 40. Beginning in verse 1. Sometime after this, the cupbearer of the king of Egypt and his baker committed an offense against their lord, the king of Egypt. And Pharaoh was angry with his two officers, the chief cupbearer and the chief baker. And he put them in custody in the house of the captain of the guard, in the prison where Joseph was confined. The captain of the guard appointed Joseph to be with them, and he attended to them. They continued for some time in custody. And one night they both dreamed, the cupbearer and the baker of the king of Egypt, who were confined in the prison, each his own dream, and each dream with its own interpretation. When Joseph came to them in the morning, he saw that they were troubled. So he asked Pharaoh's officers, who were with him in custody in his master's house, why are your faces downcast today? They said to him, we have had dreams and there is no one to interpret them. And Joseph said to them, do not interpretations belong to God? Please tell them to me. So the chief cupbearer told his dream to Joseph and said to him, in my dream there was a vine before me, And on the vine there were three branches. As soon as it budded, its blossoms shot forth, 
and the clusters ripened into grapes. Pharaoh's cup was in my hand, and I took the grapes and pressed them into Pharaoh's cup and placed the cup in Pharaoh's hand. Then Joseph said to him, this is its interpretation. The three branches are three days. In three days, Pharaoh will lift up your head and restore you to your office. And you shall place Pharaoh's cup in his hand as formerly when you were his cupbearer. Only remember me when it is well with you. And please do me the kindness to mention me to Pharaoh and so get me out of this house. For I was indeed stolen out of the land of the Hebrews, and here also I have done nothing that they should put me into the pit. When the chief baker saw that the interpretation was favorable, he said to Joseph, I also have a dream. There were three cake baskets on my head, and in the uppermost basket there were all sorts of baked food for Pharaoh, but the birds were eating it out of the basket on my head. And Joseph answered and said, This is its interpretation. The three baskets are three days. In three days, Pharaoh will lift up your head from you and hang you on a tree, and the birds will eat the flesh from you. On the third day, which was Pharaoh's birthday, he made a feast for all his servants and lifted up the head of the chief cupbearer and the head of the chief baker among his servants. He restored the chief cupbearer to his position, and he placed the cup in Pharaoh's hand. But he hanged the chief baker as Joseph had interpreted to them. Yet the chief cupbearer did not remember Joseph, but forgot him. And beloved, this is God's holy word. You can be seated. Bedford, England, just 50 miles northwest of London, in the mid-1600s, there was a Puritan pastor by the name of John Bunyan. John Bunyan wrote one of the most prolific works of theological fiction ever penned, and you might already know what I'm referring to, The Pilgrim's Progress, right? The Pilgrim's Progress is this, class, this classic theological fiction, this allegory of the Christian life where we see the main character, Christian, journeying this arduous path on his way to the celestial city, on his way to heaven. But what not a lot of people know about John Bunyan is that he actually wrote The Pilgrim's Progress from a prison cell in Bedford. John Bunyan was in prison for 12 years for his faith. The governing authorities commanded, demanded that he not preach the gospel and he could not consent. And there's, there's this excerpt that it strikes the imagination with, with fear and pain as he writes about his family, about not being with them, especially one of his children who is blind. Listen to this ex- excerpt from Bunyan. The parting with my wife and poor children has often been to me in this place as the pulling of the flesh from my bones. 
and that not only because I am somewhat too fond of these great mercies, but also because of the thought of the many hardships, miseries, and needs that my poor family would meet after taken from them, especially my poor blind child, who lay nearer my heart than all I had besides. Oh, the thoughts of the hardships I thought my blind one might undergo would break my heart to pieces. John Bunyan served and still does serve as one of the many examples in the cloud of witnesses who have been imprisoned and suffered for the sake of the gospel. And here in our text this morning, in chapter 40 of Genesis, we see the Bible's first account, the first example of a man of God who was imprisoned unjustly. And although none of us here, at least right now, none of us are imprisoned for our faith, this story, this narrative is so crucial for us as those who have suffered, those who are currently suffering, those of us who are coming alongside other sufferers and for all of us who will face suffering sometime in the future. In this passage before us, chapter 40, through this emotional roller coaster of a narrative before us, God here is instructing us on how to make sense of our sufferings when nothing makes sense at all. In this text before us, in Genesis 40, what God is instructing us, his people, is how to make sense of the chaos when nothing around us makes any sense at all. As far as structure goes, this text is just a wonderful example of, of this classic plot line, right? We have the setting, and we have rising action leading to verse 20 where we see this climax in the story, and then there's resolution and a new setting. So instead of breaking it up in this sermon in different points, we're just going to move through this sweeping narrative together. And so put yourself into the shoes of Joseph this morning as we read through this account. Look with me at verse 1 of Genesis 40. Sometime after this, the cupbearer of the king of Egypt and his baker committed an offense against their lord, the king of Egypt. And Pharaoh was angry with his two officers the chief cupbearer and the chief baker. And he put them in custody in the house of the captain of the guard in the prison where Joseph was confined. The captain of the guard appointed Joseph to be with them and he attended them. They continued for some time in custody. So here we see this setting. This is where everything jumps off from in this account. And we find here Joseph He's in prison because of the, the previous scenes that we saw a couple weeks back. In Genesis 37, he's thrown into a pit by his jealous brothers. And then he is taken by Ishmaelites, sold into slavery. And in chapter 38, we see Joseph, a slave in Egypt, in the house of Potiphar, the captain of the guard. And yet he rises to power, right? He rises to some sort of authority. The Lord blesses his work 
as he's in Potiphar's home. And yet, the story comes crashing down again because Joseph is falsely accused for sexual misconduct and he's thrown right back into the pit in Potiphar's prison. So that's where we find ourselves this morning with Joseph. And we're not entirely sure of how much time has elapsed. The text in verse 1 says, some time after this. I get the sense that it's been a while, right? And we know that the whole time of Joseph's captivity in Egypt is over a decade. But what breaks this silence, what breaks the time that Joseph has been in this prison are these two visitors, these two other fellow prisoners who have come to join Joseph, the chief cupbearer and the chief baker. So the question is, who are these guys, and why is their entrance into the story important? What's their significance? The chief cupbearer and the chief baker to the king of Egypt, to the pharaoh, would have been responsible for serving the wine and food to the king. And this is, this is more than just serving wine and food. This was a really highly esteemed role with a lot of responsibility to care for and tend to the king. But the most important aspect about this cupbearer ba- cup and this baker is their proximity to the pharaoh. To be, to be the cupbearer and baker was more. It, it was to be their advisor. Right? And so in this text, we see that they offend the Pharaoh, they offend the king of Egypt, the king is angry, and then he throws these two in prison. And I don't know, I'm so curious, I don't know what these two guys did, but it must have been really bad. Right? At a five-star restaurant, if a waiter spills a glass of wine all over a famous customer that comes walking in, that's not going to end up well, right? But what if your customer is the king of Egypt, right? The king of the superpower nation of that time. That's not going to end well. However, it's no coincidence that Joseph is the one tending to their needs. Remember, Joseph, he's in prison, right? But he's been given authority, He's been given responsibility. And it's no coincidence that we see here the Lord orchestrating and ordaining for these two, the cupbearer and the baker, to land right into Joseph's proximity. And so all this to say, that's the point, right? This is a perfect setting. He's setting the stage, Moses is our author, for what's about to happen next. Look with me at verse five. And one night... They both dreamed, the cupbearer and the baker of the king of Egypt, who were confined in the prison, each his own dream and each dream with its own interpretation. When Joseph came to them in the morning, he saw that they were troubled. So he asked Pharaoh's officers who were with him in custody in his master's house, he asked them, why are your faces downcast today? They said to him, we have had dreams and there is no one to interpret them. So as the tally marks continue to accumulate in the prison wall of this cell, there's something that happens, right? 
Both the cupbearer and the baker both have dreams on the same night. Different dreams and different interpretations. And these dreams aren't good or bad necessarily, right? That's the problem though. Both the cupbearer and the baker are troubled because they have these dreams, but they don't know what they mean. And implied in the text here, underneath this, we can see that they actually believe. They believe that these are not just dreams from the pizza the night before, but that dreams convey meaning and that they're really significant. And this lines up with ancient Near Eastern philosophy of dreams. According to Old Testament scholar John H. Walton, dreams were considered important vehicles of divine communication in the ancient world. Trained specialists interpreted the dreams of important people and paying customers using dream books to discern the meaning of symbols in dreams. And this, this idea that dreams are significant in conveying meaning to the dreamer, this isn't new to our, to our account in Genesis. We see this just a few chapters back when Joseph has his dream, right, of the 11 stars and the sun and the moon bowing down to him. And his family, they don't ask, oh, do you think this means something? They already know. And they say, do you intend to rule over us? And so we find Pharaoh's former officers troubled and perplexed because they don't have the luxuries that they once had in Egypt with Egyptian magicians and interpreters. They're stuck. They don't know what to do, which is where Joseph really comes into play in this scene before us. Middle of verse 8. And Joseph said to them, Do not interpretations belong to God? Please tell them to me. What's clearly displayed in Joseph's response is a confidence in the Lord. Right? Joseph isn't an Egyptian. He's not a trained dream interpreter. He doesn't have a dream book. But, as we've seen, he is a man of God who walks with God. And he's confident that God is the one who knows all things, who governs all things, and who is able to provide an interpretation to these obscure dreamers in this pit. Joseph is a man of God who walks with him. And he finds himself submitting to these prisoners in their time of need. And so he offers up his ear for interpretation. And the dreamers share. First, we have the cupbearer's dream. In verses 9 through 13, the dream is described and the interpretation is given. And essentially, the dream goes something like this. There's a vine. There's one vine. And there's three branches. And from these three branches, bud and blossom, three clusters of grapes. And the cupbearer takes all of these grapes and squeezes them into Pharaoh's cup and hands the cup to Pharaoh. So this is the dream. And Joseph provides the interpretation. Right? Joseph says that these three branches are actually symbolic for three days. That in three days' time, you're going to be lifted up from the pit and you're going to be given the cup that you once had. You're going to be Pharaoh's cupbearer again. You were laid off, spent time in a pit, but you're going to be restored. 
right? So that's the interpretation. And you can imagine, as you see in the text, the baker is probably really excited at this point, right? He hears a favorable interpretation to the cupbearer, and he says, me too, me too. What about me, Joseph? What does my dream mean? And so in verses 16 through 19, the baker's dream is described and interpreted, but with a very different outcome. Essentially, the second dream, the baker's dream, goes a little something like this. There are three baskets stacked on top of the baker's head. The top basket is open with an assortment of baked goods for the pharaoh, and yet there are birds eating the food out of the top basket. And this is when the baker's face drops because of what Joseph says in verse 19. Look at verse 19 with me. In three days, Pharaoh will lift up your head from you and hang you on a tree, and the birds will eat the flesh from you. I don't know what the baker did, but what he must have done, he must have done something really, really bad. Right, and you see, we see this juxtaposition. The cupbearer is lifted up, and the baker is lifted up, but his head is lifted up. Literally, his head is lifted off of him, and his body is impaled to make a public disgrace of him. This is, as Gordon Wenham writes, execution followed by exposure. Two similar dreams including the numbers three in connection to Pharaoh, but two completely different outcomes. So there's a lot of details in this chapter, these dreams and this interpretation, but the most important aspect, the key really to understanding this whole passage is what Joseph says to the cupbearer in verses 14 and 15. After the favorable interpretation, Joseph says, Verse 14, only remember me when it is well with you. And please do me the kindness to mention me to Pharaoh. And so get me out of this house. For I was indeed stolen out of the land of the Hebrews. And here also I have done nothing that they should put me into the pit. This plea, this request from Pharaoh, this is the hinge to understanding this whole passage. Joseph realizes that there is a golden opportunity in front of him. There's not just two more random prisoners who have come into his midst, but these are the chiefs, the chief cupbearer and the chief baker to the king of Egypt. And he sees this golden opportunity as he interprets this dream for him to actually be delivered, finally delivered from this pit. Joseph has one request, just one thing. He says, only remember me. And so Joseph pleads his case. He says, only remember me. Just one thing, cupbearer, when you get out of here, please remember me. Please tell Pharaoh that I don't belong here. I was stolen from the land of the Hebrews. I was thrown into a pit. I was thrown into this pit unjustly. I don't belong here. Please get me out. And so for Joseph, this must be it. 
he must be thinking this is it. This is the chance that the Lord has orchestrated and given for me to be delivered finally. Right? So the dreams are shared and described. The interpretations are given. And Joseph's plea is made known. Listen to what happens next in verse 20. On the third day, which was Pharaoh's birthday, he made a feast for all his servants and lifted up the head of the chief cupbearer and the head of the chief baker among his servants. So this, verse 20, this is that climax. This is the moment of truth. Three days have passed, and the cupbearer and the baker, they both are lifted up from the pit. As Joseph had predicted, this is the moment of truth. Whether or not Joseph's interpretation is from God or not, whether it's going to prove accurate or not. Verse 21. He restored the chief cupbearer to his position, and he placed the cup in Pharaoh's hand, but he hanged the chief baker as Joseph had interpreted to them. And so we discover the interpretations are indeed correct. Right? This is tragic for the baker, yet it's nonetheless accurate. Joseph was correct. As verse 22 concludes, everything happened as Joseph had interpreted to them. And so the point is that the pieces are in place. Everything has worked out perfectly. The cupbearer has been released. He's going back to Pharaoh. He's going back to a man who has power and authority to grant freedom to anyone he chooses. And Joseph just helped out this baker, rather this cupbearer. This is the opportunity. This is where redemption happens, right? This is where deliverance happens. You see where I'm going, right? Verse 23. Yet the chief cupbearer did not remember Joseph, but forgot him. Joseph is forgotten. This is utterly heartbreaking. Just imagine, put yourself in Joseph's place. He just interprets these dreams. It starts to happen just as he says it would. Right? The cupbearer and the baker, they leave the prison. And he must have had a little more pep in his stride. He must have had some sort of anticipation, right? But days pass. And Joseph might have been thinking, well, it takes time, right? He's probably just settling into his role. He's settling in a bit. He doesn't want to ask Pharaoh too quickly. He's, he's just getting acclimated again. But the days turn into weeks, and the weeks turn into months, Summer, fall, winter, spring, silence, nothing. In fact, the very next verse of chapter 1 says, after two whole years. Two whole years of silence. What about you this morning? Joseph lived 
in those two years of silence, of obscurity, of wondering why, of all the confusion, what about you this morning? Does this confusion resonate with you? Have you been forgotten? Have you been mistreated? Have you been left with the debris of suffering and heartache and are left with the shattered pieces but don't know how to make sense of it all? If you haven't in the past, that's, that's because you are either going through it now or you will go through it in the future because we live here in the shadow lands of Eden. Things are broken. We need restoration. We're waiting for heaven. We're heaven bound. But in the meantime, we are living in this broken, shattered world. And as we sit in the ambiguity and confusion, just like Joseph, this is when the questions come, right? This is when the questions come start to come like why why God how could a good God who ordains and orders all things allow this to happen to me Romans eight twenty eight says all things work together for good for the good of those who love God who are called according to his purposes but I just don't see how God is going to make this work out for my good. Why, God, and how? These are the questions. And so at the end of chapter 40, we don't get any answers. I am so tempted to dive into chapter 41 right now because we do see some of the answers. We see some of the reasons why God ordered things the way he did. But I'm constrained by this text before us to stay right here and to not move too quickly into the next chapter because this is where we live in our suffering. We don't have the luxury of flipping the page and seeing how it's all going to work out for our good and for God's glory. This is where we live in suffering. Joseph doesn't get all the answers in this text. And often we don't either in our unique set of bars. In this life, we may never understand God's plans and purposes. We may get glimpses of what God is up to but we're not there yet. We don't see him face to face yet. We don't see how everything is going to work out. However, church, what we do get is exactly what Joseph gets. Joseph doesn't get a why or a how or a what but he gets a who. We find Joseph right back where he started, back in Genesis 39, verse 21. But the Lord was with Joseph and showed him steadfast love. 
here in this obscurity, in this darkness, we see a God who is with Joseph. And he is with us, his people. Now, does God's presence make the pain disappear overnight? No. What I'm not saying is that our pain and lamentations are magically overnight with the flip of a switch, that they're, that they're just turned into joy. That's not what I'm saying. Instead, it's the very nearness of God which gives us as his people the means of expressing our laments before him. It's his very nearness which gives us the means, the way by which we express what we are actually feeling, what we are actually going through. I loved what Rick preached last week from James 1, to consider it joy. Not necessarily to feel joy, to pretend that you're feeling joy when you show up to church on Sunday, but count it joy. That's what God is after. It's because of the nearness of God that David, King David, in his own sufferings, is able to say here in Psalm 13, How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? We ought to cry out to God. The very fact that we are saying, Lord, where are you? Means that he is near to the brokenhearted to give us a place where we are able to express that before him in prayer. This is different than putting God on trial and saying, why? Where were you? Right? Like Job did. This is different. But we are actually able to lament. We are able to confess to God what we are feeling. And we are able, like King David, to finish out this lament the way he does in Psalm 13. This is how he finishes. But I've trusted in your steadfast love. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. The cupbearer may have forgotten Joseph, but God does not forget his people. God does not forget you in your pain, in your loss, in your anguish, when you feel like your heart has been ripped out of your chest, he is with you. When you don't have all the answers, the one who does is with you. And this is enough. We will see one day with more clarity as to how, how Romans 8.28 actually happens, how God makes all things work together for good for those who love him. But here and now, we have him. We sit in the silence, and yet he is with us.
and the ultimate culmination of the nearness of God to his people is found in Jesus Christ. This is the culmination of the very nearness of God. Christ right now, right now is seated at the right hand of the Father. He is sitting down because the work is accomplished. He made purification for the sins of his people. He atoned for our sins. He gave us forgiveness of sins by the shedding of his blood and he is seated right now at God's right hand. And the apostle Paul says of us who are in Christ, he says that we are seated with Christ in heavenly places. We are with Christ, seated in heavenly places. We are with Christ, and he is with us. Christ in us, the hope of glory. As Rick preached last week, what a view that is to behold. And so that's where we are at right now, by faith, seated with Christ. And, and at the same time, right, that's the already, that's already taken place. But we live in the not yet. We live in the shadowlands of Eden. We live with brokenness. We live with loss and pain and suffering and confusion. But God, church, God in this text is calling us. He's calling us to trust in him when nothing around us makes sense at all. All things will be revealed. By faith, may we as his people trust in the Lord with all of our heart, not leaning on our own understanding. May we, like the psalmist, say, whom have I in heaven but you, O God? And there is nothing on earth I desire besides you. My heart and my flesh may fail, right? But God is the joy of my heart. He is with his people. John Bunyan, as he was in his own prison cell in Bedford, England, penned these words. It is always hard to see the purpose in wilderness wanderings until after they are over. It was hard for Joseph. It was hard for Bunyan. And it's hard for us. This is not easy. It's, it's simple. Yet it's profound. Right? That God is with us, his people even though we can't see all the hows and all the whys, we come to the one who is with us. He is our rock and our refuge, a very present help in time of need. Let's pray together, church. Lord, thank you for this text. Oh God, thank you that we do get to turn the page and we do get to see the reality of Romans 8:28 come to fruition in Joseph's life. We get to see how you turn and make 
all things, even calamity, work together for the good of your people. And yet, right now, to your people who are suffering right now, who are living in the silence right now, God, would you teach us to trust in you? We don't have all the answers. We don't know, yet we are held and kept by the one who does and who indeed is working all things together for our good. God, would you cause for us to anchor, to refuge, to hide ourselves in thee, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.